You're listening to Resident Advisors Exchange. I'm Martha. Thank you for joining us. This week, RA contributor Marcus Barnes is here to share with us his conversation with the DJ, producer and promoter, Stephen C. After this whole pandemic and this lockdown, I'm ready. Like, I'm more inspired now than I've ever been after sitting at home for eight months. So I want to do more events. I want to fine tune the events that I've got and learn from all the mistakes of the past because that's what I did in the pandemic. I literally spent time analyzing each brand. What were the mistakes? What were the successes? What could we have done differently? And that's how I figured out we need to carry on our formula because our formula has always been the same. Headliners, room one, underground room two. That's, That's our philosophy. It's not change and it's worked for us for a decade. Stephen C is an essential part of London nightlife and has always found a way to elevate and progress the sound of the city throughout its many phases, genres and scenes. With a background in pirate radio and record shops, Stephen's bright ideas and intuitive thinking have contributed to his successful career in underground music. He's one of the minds behind iconic grime party Eskimo Dance, Soulful Day Party Siesta, and of course, Audio Whore, dedicated to house music and celebrating 10 years of raving this year. Stephen spoke to Marcus about starting his own CD distribution business, DJing for Wiley, navigating an institutionally racist network of venues, and the importance of never being afraid to start over. This is such a brilliant conversation, packed with insights and stories that will be very valuable to any budding promoters listening in. So I hope that you enjoy this one. It's Stephen C on RA's Exchange. Hey, it's Marcus Barnes here for the RA Exchange. It's Thursday, the 7th of October, and joining me is the mighty Stephen C. How's it going, Steve? How are you doing, Marcus? You right, yeah? Yeah, I'm good, thank yeah, you. Man. Thanks for joining us. Anytime, man. It's good to come down. Now, you've got a very decorated history, and you're a very busy man all the way up until the present day. So we're going to dig into a little bit of your past and also um, talk about what you're up to now, uh, post-pandemic. I wanted to start by asking you, so um, you were saying just before we started recording that you grew up in South London. Yeah. What were some of your main sources for discovering music, getting into music and kind of, um, you know, learning about the music that you loved? Um, my brother used to listen to UK Garage and House. So that was like my first music that I remember obviously beforehand my parents used to listen to reggae and stuff but the first as I remember before I wanted to buy decks was it was the garage era that really made me tip and say yeah I want to be a DJ so I think I got some Sherwood belt drives from Richard Sounds and I started going record shopping I think this was like maybe 99 ish 2000 right. I can't remember exactly the year but around that time when garage was still booming. So yeah, that's what I started. Used to save every penny. Used to play cards at school, blackjack. 
to make some money and go to the record shop. Literally used to go there, remember? <laughs> Records never used to really be that expensive back then. You'd be able to get a decent track for like fiver. Yeah, man. So yeah, that's that's my first early days of music. It was the garage that really put me into it. And how how did you discover what a DJ was and kind of, um, you know, want to emulate that, that sort of, um, that role? Yeah, my brother had all the tape packs. Exposure, Sun City, the Cosa Nostra. So I was listening to the tape pack, so I was I was hearing the raves live and like all of that EZ, B Live, MC Kai, like all those guys from back then, like the Martin Lanas. So I was, I was listening to them as a child before I was even a DJ, and I thought this is a vibe. This music's sick. Nice. And did yeah. you did you get out to any raves early on? Or I think the first raves I went to was like a under twenty ones Ben and Jerry's. I think it was like in New Cross. I can't even remember where it was. It might have been New Cross Lafez, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that was like the first memory of raving the under twenty ones or the under 18s, wherever it was. Nice. That was like my first memory of raving. Yeah, getting into it, and then by the time I was sixteen, I was working in a record shop. Nice. So I kind of transitioned from yeah going there every week to getting a job there, and I feel like that was my first like foot in the door in the music. So, just rewinding slightly, can you explain to people Lefez and also some of the other prominent South London spots? Because there'll be people listening to this that obviously aren't familiar with, with the area. Yeah, Lefez was like a, well, back then it was known as an under, under 18 spot. It wasn't, I don't remember what over 18 events were in Lefez, but it was just like the spot. Like now there isn't any under 21 events because they're deemed, or they were deemed too dangerous. So, licensing don't let them happen anymore. I know that as a promoter. Mm. But that that was the spot. If you was couldn't go raving, you were going to these under twenty one raves, and it was almost like how it is now. Like everyone from different areas just go to the rave. I don't even know how they managed to get their promo back then, <laughs> or how they infiltrated the schools and the colleges. <laughs> but they they managed to do something, and yeah, it was the vibe. It was the place to be. Like if you was it, you was at one of them dances. And what were some of the other spots that you went to around those times? Is there anywhere else? Oh. Caesars, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Caesars. Where's Caesars? Stratham, in it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. Stratham High Street, yeah. Isn't it? Oh, yeah. My, my mind's slowly coming back now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Them, them spots. Yeah, those are the spots. And then I remember, ah, oh, man, what was that one in Croydon? Was it Kudos? Ah, oh. no, it wasn't. It was Blue something. Yes, I've got Blue in my mind as well. Yeah, Blue. Um, Oh, orchids, that's orchids. it. Yeah, <laughs> those are like the early, early raver spots. If you're from South London, you'll know. If you're old, over thirty years old, <laughs> definitely know. Yeah, those are the early spots because it's crazy how those spots were big then, and now everything's kind of compressed into near enough central Londonish. Yeah, like yeah. If you look at the South London nightclubs; they're pretty much on the cusp mm -hmm. of central london so it's mad how those out of town nightclubs have faded like i never really got to even do events let alone dj in them by yeah, the time i come through yeah mad. so they was already really played out by then yeah it's funny how the i mean these like for, for like i'm a little bit older but yeah. like growing up in south there were certain places that everyone that i knew all my peers were, were going to on a regular basis mm. 
Um, even like Tiger Tiger in Croydon was like a spot that people would go to like on a, on a regular basis. And... <laughs> That's funny because I remember going to Yates <laughs> like a 16 year old yeah. in Lewisham yeah. every week, every weekend. <laughs> Yates, Lewisham, it's mad. Yeah. I forgot about them spots. Yeah. It's like, it's only when you start talking about it that you start thinking, wow, man, like all those places were just like regular haunts yeah. for all of us. Yeah. Those are the spots. It's crazy how generations have changed and their their tastes have changed more than anything also venue i get it being a promoter i actually understand where maybe some of those spots have gone now because it's like some of them were too problematic for licensing and yeah. i know how it is give the venue a warning next thing they got notice on their license and they lose their license mm. so i get it but for me I, it feels like london's pushed done this on purpose to push nightlife towards center mm. and leave the outskirts alone mm. and the other thing is like having places like that you can go to that are that are quite local it helps to kind of like build some kind of community around yeah. you know the, the the nightlife as well and in in some respects because that's starting to diminish you kind of lose that community aspect a little bit and you know people are kind of like going from all over london to one particular one place, place that's more central yeah, I feel like that that little community that we used to have back in the day, it was just friends, local area. It was it was a vibe. I suppose maybe internet's got a bit to play with that because mm. back then the internet wasn't really so prominent. I'm talking about social media here. Yeah, yeah. So you'd have no choice but to you wouldn't know maybe to link up and go to an event that's more central. So your local area might be the only thing you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so what? motivated you to then um you know you're 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 into garage you're you're buying the records you're doing a little bit of djing at home and stuff what gave you the motivation to go i want to go and work in a record shop well before that um a few of my friends in school in a snap keto fibs we used to like do tapes at home oh okay. yeah so we used to i used to dj they used to mc nice. so we was doing that from home Obviously, send off your tape. I think first radio station was 2GFM. And then I don't even know what the second radio station I was on. I just remember the first. I've been on so many stations. <laughs> but yeah, 2G was the very first station I was on. Where were they based? That was in South uh, at the time, maybe Grove Park, Sydney-ish. You're talking about a lot of years now. My <laughs> memory's gone. And then I think I went on to On Top after that, if I remember correctly. Um, so we was going through this sort kind of, you know, friends linking up, um, I'm DJing, they're MCing. So we started to take it a lot more seriously. At the time I was thinking, yeah, this is me, this is my career. So going into the record shop and wanting to be a part of where it was at was kind of like the no brainer, the next step for mm. me. Mm. So yeah, that's how I pretty much did it. As soon as I left school, that was what I wanted to do. And were, were there, like, in your minds, were there any other options on the table in terms of, like, what you were going to do as a career? Or was it literally, like, nah, music? Um, I was studying. I did well mm. in school. I yeah. got Bs, As, Cs. I don't think I got any Ds. I think I think I pretty much got A's, Cs. I think pretty much all throughout. And then I went to college. I did A-levels. I went uni. So in the back of my mind, there was always, like, a backup. But yeah. music was the passion. It was what I wanted. But I just thought I'd go to school do college uni yeah. just, uh, just in case fair enough man. i don't regret it but yeah 
it's pretty pointless. <laughs> to be fair, I've learned a lot, so I won't say that. That's a bad thing to say. I'll say a lot of what I learned through school, college, and uni, most of it might have shaped my business path today. Mm. So that's yeah. interesting to know. Yeah. yeah, man. Yeah, because I did business management in uni. Right. So I yeah. kind of feel like inadvertently that knowledge might have shaped some of the decisions I've made as I've gone through the business in the music. That's good that it's done you well in that respect, man. Because yeah. I'm I'm kind of of a similar mindset. You know, I speak to my nephew sometimes, he's 15, and he's like, oh, school's long, man, school's long. And I'm like, yeah, it is long. But just yeah. get your head down and just do what you need to yeah, do, just man. Do it. <laughs> At the very least, I would say, maybe just do college yeah because by then you kind of might have a gauge of what you want to do you might look at it and then realize doing four years of uni is a waste of your time because mm. i remember my last two years of uni was a drag yeah i, bet. I didn't even want to be there like by then my head was so in the music yeah man it was like that's where my focus was whereabouts were you uni i did greenwich uni i did all in college so yeah, all South London. Ooh, I basically, I basically never left South. Yeah. <laughs> Why would you want to though, man? <laughs> no, because a lot of my friends did uni like up north yeah, around yeah. to do that whole experience dormitory stuff. Yeah, man. I, w I think I was so into music. I just felt like I needed to stay around. Yeah, but fair at that enough. time, like, but at that time, radio was, was good. Just got on radio all the time, literally. So how are you managing to, to sort of balance your uni studies and, you know, doing radio? And Were you still working in the record shop at that yeah, time as well? doing it all. Wow. Yeah, man, it's got time. There's time. <laughs> you see, what you're forgetting is back then there's no social media. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not getting up, spending two hours on my phone f flicking through anything. I'm getting up literally maybe recording something, going to work, coming back home, eating a food and doing a bit of work and then going out to see my friends. By this time, maybe it's seven, eight. Yeah, I've yeah. done everything. Like, there's nothing <laughs> else to do. So I feel like maybe back then we had more time mm. than we thought. Mm. Yeah, you know what? When you when you put it like that, I think back to my uni days and I think I packed a lot into a day yeah. back then. A lot into a day. A lot more than I do now. <laughs> you do a lot. You do a lot. So tell me more about the record shop. What was it called? And, it was um, released The Groove. Oh, nice. Yeah, big up Gary. Yeah. Yeah, Dean Savon and, and them crew. Yeah, yeah it's man. funny because that's before Stephen C was cheeky. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, 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 and yeah. Angel T, Femme Force. Mm -hmm. I think they named me and Crafty because I was going there from young. Yeah. Cheeky lad. So, yeah, <laughs> it, it stuck. So, yeah, a few years later, I got a job in there and I was there. I was listening to House in there a lot. That's kind of where the house influence started to creep in. Right. Because by the time I was in there, it was House was prominent soulful house or us house or whatever they want to call it mm -hmm. and it was uk garages kind of fading it was becoming grime and obviously me, when me and my friends were mc and i was djing those mc and sorry i was going more to the dark side of garage yeah like before it was even called grime yeah i remember calling it dark garage and then johnny cash came low it became the sub low mm -hmm. vibe and then it somehow merged into garage but yeah that's that era there, that was a good era. Yeah, Some man. of those garage songs, I listen to them now and I think, this isn't garage. Yeah. Like, it's like just yeah. on that cusp yeah, when it's, it's making that transition, right? And it, But it didn't have a name really. Like you could didn't. you could call it a style, but it wasn't necessarily grime as in like this strong no, idea of a genre. That Narrows, DJ Narrows sticks out yeah. for me, those tracks. they 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 you, you can't call them grime and you can't call them garage. Mm. They're 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 the in between. Yeah, man. Era. That was a really strong. So like that's about 
2001, 2002. Yeah, ish. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. It's even like an Agent X decoy mm -hmm. to an extent. I wouldn't even say it's a garage tune, mm. but you would never say it's a grime tune ever, either. Nah. So, yeah. yeah. There was like a track, there was like a 18 months of transitioning. For sure. Where you could hear the producers were, were going a bit darker. And so you started to shift in that direction, did you? Yeah, know? definitely. I think with, with my friends MC and Over the Beats, it made less sense playing all the vocals, obviously. The vocals mattered because when I'm playing at a house party, mm -hmm. you had to drop the vocals for the girls. Yeah. Like it was important. I knew that from early. Yeah. I think maybe <laughs> me DJing now, I always have one mind what ladies want because that's how I was from house party days. Yeah. I yeah. always knew the vocals was what doing it. They didn't really care about the beats and that. Mm -hmm. It was just a it was a it was a boy thing back then. Yeah. You want to get the women on the dance floor because it creates like a really good energy. Yeah, trust me. Like, you know, I don't think anyone, male or female, likes a fully male dance floor. No, <laughs> it's just just that testosterone just man, like... You switch it up, man. The vocals yeah. are really important. Yeah, man. And so um, how did things develop from, uh, you know, this sort of shift into the more sort of dark garage slash grime era, but also being at the record shop? You know, what were your next steps on from there? Uh, my next steps after that, it was kind of once we got into the grimy era, I would say I was like 16 going on 17. I think back then I was in a crew called, uh, oh man, South Agents. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was in a crew called South Agents. And I think we, I can't remember what station it was on. Might, we might have even crept onto Deja by then. Mm. But we, we was playing around and we was getting out then. By then, one man might have had a car. And he was all cramming into the car, maybe <laughs> six man cramming in the car to go radio. Yeah. So I did that for a while and I became more prominent in the record shop. I was I became like head buyer. I was buying records. So that's kind of how I met some of those grime MCs. Yeah. Because I remember one day I was shouting Wiley and it's like, oh, yeah, man, we need your songs in the shop. And we became friends from that. Wicked. Pretty much. And then I was calling up saying, yeah, I want to cut a dub plate. So that's like from 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 that kind of introduction from working in the record shop. I met quite a few producers at the point where I could say, "Yo, what what you got? I need something new for radio." Yeah, and they'd, nice. They'd, they'd send me a tune on CD. Go go to Music House, go to JTS. Yeah, cut a dub plate. Yep. and play it on the radio. Boom. That was like, yeah, that was like my step into the game. Like what maybe separated me from maybe another DJ. Yeah. in my local area that might not have had access to those type of people. So that was me on my way from then. And were you frequenting the clubs as a DJ at that time as well? By then, the, un the unders had stopped. Right. By then, I was getting myself into the over-18s raves. Mm. I remember going to Smooth every Friday in Ministry of Sound. Mm -hmm. That was like the spot. I'll, I'll be there every Friday without fail. Like, <laughs> it's mad. <laughs> but yeah, that was the spot. Of raving, listening, tuning in, girls having fun. Like that, was, that might be the best, my favorite era. Just there was nothing really going on in life, <laughs> no responsibilities. Yeah. Like it was fun, yeah. It was fun. It was fun. And what was the score at Smooth? Can you explain to people that are listening, like what was Smooth the up? Was Ministry of Sounds weekly night run by Lawrence Bagnall and Michelle Hunter. I think Yankee was involved too, but I'm not quite sure. Um, that was every Friday. It was Rhyme Jam every single week. Garage, grime in the main room, R&B and hip hop in room two, room three, and might have something else that might be quick 
might be hot at the time, but the rave was popping every week without fail. It was the place to be. If you're from South, mm -hmm. you know about Smooth and you're over 30. It was the place every Friday. So that was like my spot. Nice, yeah. nice. The, all of this, all of these early experiences, um, how much would you say they kind of fed into the way that you approach par parties as a promoter? A lot. Yeah. I think I've learned so much from going to a rave as a 17, 18 year old and even going to the unders back in the day to see how things have kind of transitioned and trends like i've seen music scenes come and go yeah i've seen artists have big egos come come and go i've seen so much i've seen the clubs come and go yeah man so i kind of feel when it got to the time fast forward to me doing events i kind of had a knowledge of stuff because i was so in there all mm. the time like whether or not you're djing or you're a raver when you're in it to every single week you kind of develop like a sense of at least what the people want. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Which is crucial, isn't it, really? Yeah. To, to, work, to everything. And what about um, gigging? Were you picking up a lot of bookings as well? I think my first proper gig. I couldn't even tell you my first proper gig is, you know. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there trying to think. I, I remember my first out of London gig. Oh, yeah? Where'd you yeah. go? My first out of London gig was with Flodan and Tinchy Strider. In 2004, I think I did a rave in Leeds called Slap and Tickle. Sick. Yeah, that's my first out of London gig. Like I'm, I'm trying to remember go back because I played a couple under 21s before they went, but I was 15 then. Right. Like the Lefezes and that getting on the decks. I can't remember what date that was, but the first out of London one, I remember that. But you were, you were starting to pick up gigs in London too. Yeah, from from early, yeah. I was doing that that cool, would you call a house party gig. Cause I, yeah. I would, cause back back then people would call and say like, yeah, I want you to DJ at my house party. So mm. from then I would say 13, 14, I was doing gigs. Okay. Like house parties and then it got on before the under 21 era ended. I remember doing a couple of them. And then there was like a period of time where there was obviously nothing to do because there was no raves for, the, for my age. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of wait until I was a bit older to, to get the bookings again. And what so, about, yeah. um, you know, going from cutting dubs playing radio etc etc um to then entering into what became the very early grime scene and and being sort of you know part of all of that um it was a good era i remember those eras that they it was it was back then it was this time i'm 17 i've just got a car so literally yeah, that's that that was the game changer <laughs> i was literally out from morning to night didn't come home and i remember get, getting up going to cut dubs chilling going radio pirate radio by then i might have got onto freeze fm by this time oh, nice. so i was yeah. traveling from south london all the way over to northwest london yeah yeah to dj with everyone so yeah that time was that's all we did mm. i feel like that built grime the pirate radio, the it was like a bunch of local teenagers and obviously somewhere in their early 20s getting together just on a set. Yeah, There was no music agents. There was no real direction. Mm -hmm. There was no mixtapes. It was literally link up, radio, cut dubs and repeat. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like everyone was just in it. Like literally just living that life, man. Like there was... It's a good time. There was no pressure. 
Yeah. Like I I kind of understand back then is I always look to now and think, well, why don't the, the young ones now do it? And I kind of feel maybe social media has played a factor. They got more of a pressure maybe to look apart mm-hmm. and to do certain things. But back then we never had that. It was just straight vibes, yeah. music. There was no other distractions. And it just it just evolved into its own thing because they were already, the components were kind of already there. Like, you know, the, everyone was just dressing in that particular way anyway. Yeah. And, you know, the music sort of, everyone was just experimenting. This is the thing that I really love, like, you know, being the age that I am and like, you know, obviously you've, you've seen it too, is living through these times where, you, where the music first starts to appear. And you have all these different people that are like cultivating their own different sounds because there's no template. So you're, you're literally going, okay, like I'm going to do something that sounds like this, but I'm going to try and oh, do that. this with it. And, or I'm going to like, I like what they're doing, but I'm going to compete with them and try and do this. And it's like... That's why the early Grime Elements had so many different flavours. Yeah. Like obviously, Wiley was in the East with the Esky sound. Johnny Cash is in the West with the Sublo sound. And they, whilst you could play them on the same set, they were different sounds. Yeah, man. They were quite different. So, yeah, I understand exactly what you're saying. Everyone in the musical mob lot had their little Northwest thing going yep. on. So, yeah. It's the same with the MCs, you know, like everyone had their own like unique personality that they brought to the mic it's a good vibe yeah it's a good time um and so you went on to become like quite an intrinsic part of eskimo dance yeah i uh, fast forward many years obviously by by this time me and wiley were were close like i was djing for him by the time i was like 18 19 and then i was doing the the record shop side of the business so i got in after the record shop I left Release the Groove maybe at 18, 19 when, when I was going into university. So by then, I had already set up kind of a distro out of my boot. Oh, right. Yeah. So like Savvy Me was just thinking, how can I get some money? <laughs> so I was ringing up everyone saying, I'll, I'll distribute your records for you. I'll do that. I'll even press them up. So I was, I was cutting out and doing the work. So some of the early grime lot, I was I was getting the tracks, going, printing up five hundred records, distributing them, stiving up the money, taking a little cut for myself, yeah, and repeat. I kind of made a business out of it. Wow, nice man. Yeah, so that kind of um, developed that close relationship. That I think I think two thousand eleven, but then Eskimo Dance was done. Like the police was like, no, never again. That like, it was in the mud, but excited me as a promoter in my first year was like i just want to do events so i remember ringing him up late 2011 saying yeah let's bring this back and the police went mental that's <laughs> what, what i remember in what way like the, the first thing they said they rang up the venue when they, they the venue arcs said we're gonna do this event this time it was proud too in the o2 they said no no way this is not coming back under no circumstances but me was like no like why I was trying this is this is start of the 696 era yeah, okay. where the fight started to happen from here because it was like well why what's what's wrong here like why why stigmatize something that people like mm-hmm. so eventually we come up with a plan because it was an O2 that we will we'll put some provisions in place and we'll kind of secure the event so it wasn't bad and it turned out that the crowd that they were afraid of didn't really come out we right. didn't really do i can't by, by this time 
the promo methods that you might use to get a different audience out. I completely dropped it, completely dropped the lineups. I switched it up completely. It was more grime. Back in the day, it was like Bashman R&B. Yeah, okay. Till like the end and the last set was grime. I pretty much dropped that whole side of it out and it was just pretty much grime and a bit of a UK garage. And yeah, it worked. Nice. It worked. They flipped for the first three events. Yeah. The licensing police. They were they they were proper on us, and like they were they were grading us as super high risk, like for no reason, no incidents, no apparent reason. But yeah, that was the stigma that we was under. Wow! But you yeah. managed to pull through perseverance. Yeah. Well done, man. I give it to the venue as well because they yeah. they the first one was so good. They did so much money in the bar that time. They must have thought we need to keep this in. Yeah, yeah. Because they wanted to keep me in, like they wanted this event. They saw its potential, so they did back me. Some other venues might have caved. As soon as licensing police say, don't do a show, I've had I've had shows where they cave, mm. cancel your show immediately. Mm. So it's kind of good that um, they persevered with that one because that would never have got come back and got off the ground otherwise. Yeah, you need to have the venue on, on side, don't you? And I guess like having such a big prominent venue that's in the O2 as well, it like you've a got lot. a lot of a lot of like you know people backing you up there. Yeah, it helped a lot at that time. It helped a lot. I'm glad it happened because that would never have lasted anywhere else. I, I can't think of another club in London where that would have worked at that time. Mm. And so, what happened between um, this this period where you were doing the distro stuff, driving around, like pressing up records and stuff, and distributing? And then getting to the point where you were promoting. Uh, oh yeah, there was a big transition in between there. Yeah, we we we've, we've missed like a big hole in yeah, the man. story. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, yeah. After that tra- record shop, I mean not record shop, that record distro finished. I went into CD distro, so that was like the next thing. So savvy me, I think I was like one of the first to get everyone CDs into HMV. Like, How did you we, manage that? Yeah, because we figured out how to do it. Obviously, back then, no one's telling us what to do. Yeah. No one's saying, oh, yeah, you go here and you do that. Like We had a few friends at Central Direct and they was telling us how to do it. Get get Go go here, print up your CD, get a barcode on it. Mm-hmm. So if you get a barcode on it, then HMV will consider taking it. And that's how we kind of, you know, got the connecting. That Central Direct was like our first way in to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to get your CDs into HMV. And once people heard that you could do that, it helped a lot. Yeah, man, press up my CD, man. You could get in there. Did that. That's where the CD distro started. So we went from vinyl distro to CD distro. Big up Jetstar. That's how we that's how we printed everything. Cool. Yeah, we literally. I remember driving over to somewhere in West Ealing, maybe. I don't go west often. But <laughs> I think it's like Ealing. It was around that Ealing side. Driving over to West with the master CD was getting artwork done yeah. i was doing things that this was like the first era remember on, on on the record shop days people never really did artwork it was white labels mm-hmm. it was there was no need it was literally yeah we were like people didn't even bother even printing a label yeah it yeah. was just straight white label so now people are now we're evolving now we're getting artwork done graphic designers printing up cds they're going into hmv everything's going well so at this time i thought okay the next move <laughs> so i've started like an online record shop 
because obviously I worked in a record shop. I thought, yeah, yeah, just do this online, man. I don't need a shop. I obviously I did at the time. I ain't got no money to buy no shop front. So I thought, yeah, I'm gonna run this out of my bedroom. So all the vinyl and all the CDs that I was pressing up, I had them first because I was pressing them up. Sure. So no one else had them. The only other person that had them was AJ and Ads at UK Record Shop. Right. Yeah. yeah I remember UK yeah. Record Shop. So wow. between us two, we pretty much had the latest grime releases. You you'd only go there. But it was actually at by this stage. The other shops, the Uptowns, the the Independents, the Rim Divisions, they were getting left out because we were like, okay, maybe we'll take the whole lot and you couldn't compete. We kind of had the monopoly for that period of time. Yeah. So that's how that happened. That was quite successful. What was your shop called? It's called avalanchemusichut.com. Right. Yeah, that was like, yeah, that was a good era. I was, I was literally printing, going home, Printing stickers off, packaging up, packaging CDs and vinyl, going to the post office with a big sack, posting it out. Right. Yeah, I suppose that's good business experience. Yeah, yeah, running. Was running it successful then? It was. It was good. Yeah. And, I was, and I was, I was like eight, nineteen, eighteen, nineteen. Like this was. <laughs> this happened very quick. Like when I'm telling the stories of, I was seventeen here. I was eight. This was like I was eighteen, nineteen. So wow. eighteen, nineteen years old, doing that. Progressed and, quickly, man. Yeah, it progressed really quickly. And then by the time I was 20, I think Independence was closing and they asked me to buy it. It wasn't right. I didn't, mm. I, didn't, I didn't have enough money and where I was in my life, I thought the online thing's great. Yeah. So I don't even need to. And then funny enough, nine months later, I got a call from Rhythm Division. And they were selling up. And so at that time, I got a bit more money around me. I thought, you know what? Let me dive into this. So I, <laughs> so I found myself at 20 in a record shop, which Amazing. is mad. But yeah. through all of that hustling from vinyl distro, CD distro, online record shop, I was managed to accumulate, save enough and do that. It's almost that. like a natural progression in a way. Yeah. And it made sense at that time. It did a can lot. You, can you explain a little bit more about Rhythm Division for people that might not know the name and like what Rhythm Division was a shop in Bow, Roman Road. Um, obviously, I was not the f original founder of it. Um, he cut out. Didn't want to do it no more. I get why. I'll get to that bit in a minute. Hmm. But <laughs> he found someone to take it on. Yeah, so I took it on, took the name, took took the building. Yeah, got a new lease. Like, was doing all these mad stuff that you would... When I think about it, I think, how did I even know how to do that when I was 20? I was like literally making up as I went along. But it was working. <laughs> so like I was failing, like I was making up as well, quite savvy. Mate, that's why I say the uni stuff mm -hmm. kind of maybe gave me the edge with the business around this time because yeah. at this time I'm in university. So I've kind of got the edge where I've been studying how to do the basic things in business. Mm -hmm. And so those basic things of uni, like business management and business studies and all those kind of courses they they kind of teach you how to be an entrepreneur mm -hmm. in a little way like little things that you wouldn't know like doing a business plan doing a SWOT analysis like I kind of put those things into when I first got into the shop I think it kind of helped a bit so yeah that's why I say uni don't give it up unless, <laughs> but obviously 
do what you like. <laughs> yeah, I'm not telling you. But yeah, Rhythm Division was a shock, Roman Road. It was really popular um, in the Graham era before I came along. It was pretty much where they all went at that time, with the early vinyl era. Yeah. That's where they had the the early Graham stuff before yeah, anyone else. Yeah, yeah. So by the time I've come along, this is like CD era. I think this is like 2009, maybe 2010. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Ish. Might have been 2008, to be fair. Mm. In fact, it was 2008. I'm, I'm, my, my mind's going back. I'm thinking, <laughs> yeah, because I remember my my first child was born in 2008. And uh, nice. I already had the shop then. Right. So this was 2008, maybe late 2008. Um, Had the shop. It was CD era. It was prominent. I'll tell you what else was really prominent back then. What made us pretty much the most money it was the T-shirt era. Back then, Giggs was printing up his Talking the Hardest Tees. Right. Jamie was doing the Boy Better No Tees. Yeah. Bizzle was starting to do the Dench Tees. They were flying out the door. Wow. Flying out the door. Like, back, vinyl was sitting on the shelf. Yeah, okay. T-shirts, we, we couldn't get enough to <laughs> supply the demand at the time. So, yeah, that, that era, and plus the CDs were selling a lot. So you could see how the music had transitioned. Mm. And the, the vinyl was slowly fading. By then, CDJs were becoming a thing. Yeah, yeah. People were coming away from the vinyl, kind of. And merch began to make sense. Yeah, mer people. merch was like, it was almost like the birth of merch. Yeah. Because before, no one was doing no merch. No, no. I mean, yeah. like, I wouldn't even think that any of the crews had, like, a logo, per se, yeah. at that time. And then, all of a sudden, as you say, like, the graphic designers would get involved in doing yeah. artwork for CDs and... I guess I think Jamie did his own one. I think I, I, yeah. I, I think Jamie knew how to do graphic design. Yes, he did. And I'm sure he designed his tees, and he he, he basically listen. They could not. When I say I could not sell, like you could, I couldn't order enough. As soon as they came in, they was gone <laughs> immediately. Like yeah, that was a obviously knowing them helped. Yeah, it helped a lot. But yeah, it was a good time. I'd love to know where all those t-shirts are now. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, people have worn them. Like yeah. some people, you might see them in a few secondhand shops soon because it's been over a decade now. Mm. But yeah, those are some classic moments. How long did you own the shop for then? Um, I think I closed it just before I started being a promoter. So I think we closed it in early 2011. Okay. Yeah, and and was 2011. that occupying all your time? I, I'm assuming so. Um, by this time... Pretty much, yeah, I'm in the business mm -hmm. more than anything. Like, I'm deep in the business. So, like, I would wake up, go shop. I'd be there pretty much all day. But luckily, you had you had kind of time to DJ because there's decks in the shop. Yep. So I, my music didn't suffer mm -hmm. because obviously I knew what the latest tracks were because I was buying them for the shop. So I was never out of touch with what's going on. In fact, I most of you was more in touch because I needed to know what the hot track was. Of course, yeah. To call the, call the producer... Like it wasn't even like I could wait for anyone else to tell me. I had to. Yeah, I would have you to, had to know. At this time, you had to know. You had to get the the CD or the vinyl or the T-shirt first. You you need to be on the phone saying, "Well, what you got next? When's it coming?" Mm. Uh, like the the second it comes back from their distro, you need to be able to buy it. So, what were your main sources of information then? Were you like, I mean, in terms of like knowing what the big tracks were and stuff was it literally like people coming in and if that sold like lots of units you're like right that's that's hot or was it or, or were you aware through like being in clubs or like listening to radio or whatever 
I would say it was a bit of a mixture of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say definitely a mixture of everything. I think the whole thing of once a track comes in and, and goes, you already know it's hot and you know that next track. Because Crazy Cunt's an example of that. Uh, Bongo Jam, I think, was their first one. Mm-hmm. Ne- that, it, it was so popular. I remember calling Corey Johnson, who was their manager at the time, saying, I need to do the distro for your next one. So I did the distro for Funky Anthem, which was MC Versatile. I was like, yeah, man, I need. I, I, let me do this. Let me handle this for you. Because I, I saw the potential in it. So in that sense, you can see kind of what's going on there. Yeah. And if a tune's big on radio, if it's in the club, you know that it's going to be the one. Or if Slimzy, for example, might be playing a tune and your hair is coming out or in the UK funky era, Super D or Genius might be busting a tune. Mm-hmm. You know, once that comes out, it's gone. Yeah, yeah. So it's the streets. And how did you, I mean, you, again, like you were privy to this, the the transition as uh, UK funky started to come become yeah. popular. And um, and I, I remember, because I, I, like similar to you, like I've, I've always been into like various different types of music, like drum and bass was my main thing as a teenager. But when I got to like, Post uni, it was uh, I was starting to drop off drum and bass a little bit, and I was more into sort of like garage, definitely like heavily into grime. And then like come about two thousand and nine, two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, like UK funky, like all the places that I went to around South, it was just UK funky, UK funky, <laughs> UK funky. Like obviously between UK funky and grime, there was the dubstep era, but the UK funky kind of recapitulated the the UK in terms of like music because uk funky for me was like our version of house that we liked so it was similar but it had our little spin on it like it was a champion sound like it's really disappointing that it didn't go further across the globe because yeah those tracks are they're huge yeah man huge yeah so yeah that era was a really good era i'm glad i wasn't in it as a dj or a promoter but i was in it buying the music in mm. the record shop at that time and it was a good era there's a spot in greenwich it's not there anymore called uh north pole and like okay. me, me and my mates would be in there like at yeah, least once a month singing our lungs out it's so still whatever there, the big uk tune was it's still there i think <laughs> is it because i heard it got shut down because they were like selling balloons or yeah, something yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that, i think they got shut if, if they got shut down it was recently because i i remember going there in the past five years and having a drink so i've oh, yeah? been in there i've been in there because we we were going yeah. there. Maybe they had an incident. So so what what was what was happening was like me me and my mates would be going there and they were selling balloons over the counter yeah. and we'd be saying to each other, I'm sure they're not allowed to do yeah, this. And then one of my it. mates sent me a link to a local newspaper story yeah. saying shut down because they were selling balloons. Yeah, they might have got it back and then <laughs> they've been shut down again. I don't know. I'm gonna have to drive past and see. <laughs> yeah, have a look. Yeah, if it, if it's open, let me know because I want to get back down there, man. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, the balloon era. It's mad because you say that because. Fast forward, let me just pause the story for a second when we talk about balloons. In 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 our warehouse audio hall days, we were doing balloons. And it's like Majesty's my business partner in, in audio hall. If you if we, whenever we talk about the balloon era, we just laugh. <laughs> we laugh because we did so much money in such a short space of time, we couldn't believe it. Like we literally couldn't believe it. I remember ordering six boxes of balloons, cases rather, and each each case has got about maybe 
500 crackers in it. Mm -hmm. The canisters, sorry. We'd get through that in three hours and be <laughs> ringing around anyone who's got boxes, who's got like in bulk. Each event we had, we were buying brand new canisters because the canisters were gone. Yeah. Like, literally, you was, the pumps would not last. Yeah, yeah. Because like, they just getting used Yeah, they were, so getting, they were getting rinsed in a night. We just <laughs> throw them after the event. But yeah, the Blue and Arrow was, was, was a thing for a while. Yeah. Now I see them outside events and I think, you lot are still here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's like a little throwback thing that's yeah. still <laughs> So, um, so I, it's, uh, what, I, what I find really fascinating about you is that um, you've, just, you've just been so involved in, in what's going on in London for like since, since your teens, right? Yeah, pretty much. And, and not only involved, but at the forefront of a lot of things. And as you just mentioned, like Audio Whore, another another like massive London brand mm. that has 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 just been uh, present on the scene for a long time, yeah. and followed by like thousands and thousands of ravers, and like you know hosted nights at like huge venues across the city. Can you give me a little bit of history of, as to how that all kind of started for you? Because it's like obviously it's like a house event. Yeah, so obviously the the house thing was. For me, obviously, I was always, if you go back when I was talking about Release the Groove, I was always listening to House. So whilst I didn't play it, I was always listening to it. And I think after I shut the record shop, I think I went Ibiza with Skep. He was doing twice as nice. And like a lad's holiday, I think it was like me, Maximum, Skep, Be Live. Had the best time in Ibiza that year. I was like, I want to do a rave. <laughs> like it hit me when I got home, I want to do a rave. And I remember meeting Madge one of his i don't know where he was he was at one of his spots i said yeah man let's do a rave so he spent like six months playing a rave and that's really where audio hall kind of was born mm. from then i think the first one was in collie it was an absolute flop <laughs> really yeah it was, it, <laughs> tell us about it, that then. yeah it was a flop <laughs> basically when you do an event bear in mind this is my first ever event you're not really meant to start in a 2000 cap venue but <laughs> I felt like I could because I had the knowledge. So yeah, it was a disaster, man. Like fell out with friends because of it. Damn. Like it was, it it wasn't, it wasn't a good time. But we bounced back, and six months later, we did the second event in the house and terrace, which is now Studio Three Three Eight. And we changed the blueprint because the, when we started Audio Hall, it was like we want to mix the ravers together. So we try to mix the different demographics of ravers and put them in one place by mm -hmm. doing different styles of house in okay. each room. Yeah. So that was our blueprint. We started and say, you know, we're going to book a big IB for headliner and we're going to make them play in that room and that will be that sound. And in room two, we're going to do the underground London house sound. Yeah, yeah. And in room three, for the ladies, we're going to make sure we've got R&B and Bashment. Yeah. And this sounds odd to anyone listening, but yes, we had R&B and Bashment in a house rave. Like for the first two, three years of Audio Hall, yeah. there was R&B and Bashment room. And how did that go down? At the time, it was it was a vibe. Yeah. Like it kind of mixed with what we was trying to do. Mm. The first one flopped because we didn't have the quite right lineup. I think the first one was kind of like Golden Edge. It was more like on that electro vibe. We was wrong. So the second one was Ali Love oh, yeah. doing a live PA of Forward Motion. Yeah, yeah. So it was kind of fitting into what was going on yep. at the time. 
So we kind of got it right, but we kept R&B room. It was good. Like mm. people, people listening to that deep house stuff and then going upstairs and vibes in. Yeah, nice. So yeah, that was nice. it. I'd say after that second event, we didn't look back. Wicked. We didn't look back. What was um, the house and terrace like back then? Because uh, I mean, I I can I can speak for myself because I went there. But yeah. can you just explain for people listening? The house and terrace was pretty much obviously Studio Three Three Eight is the terrace wasn't the main room. Mm where you go inside to the bar that was our main room and then the terrace was just like didn't really become that popular until maybe summer 2012 if i remember correctly when we started siesta mm. and we was doing day parties because mm. obviously the terrace had a it was kind of like you was inside but outside at the same time yeah so that's where that kind of the terrace became a thing and yeah that was a good era with the, the former owners jimmy london and he he did really well for us. Like he put us in there when no one really was else was believing us. Mm. And we did so well on that second audio party. He gave us New Year's Eve. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gave us New Year's Eve. It became available out of nowhere. I think the previous promoters didn't really fancy it because the, the, their license was kind of touch and go. Okay. Like the venue wasn't, at this time, it wasn't like your usual 338 where you know it's clean and cheerful in there. It was mm -hmm. it was a problem. Licensed authorities were constantly on the venue. Mm -hmm. So they wasn't even sure if they was going to have the New Year's Eve, but was like, look, guys, we'll give it to you. And this was like three weeks before. So, <laughs> yeah, they gave it to us. And that that kind of was the catalyst for for launching future parties because we did so, that. To this day, I don't remember a time when we we sold these tickets late bear in mind because we launched it late yeah. so we've already hiked up the ticket price so after we've done the first batch of early birds at like 20 quid runs like 30 they're gone and we're like what 30 <laughs> let's let's go to 40 <laughs> and they're gone and they were like okay we got this 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 is this is the amateur side of us so we've done about a thousand tickets bear in mind at this time the venue was like 1600 we've gone 50 on the door I'm sure there was about 3,000 people there that day. <laughs> I don't know how. The doors were rushed by 11 o'clock, maybe. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it was a problem. It was a problem. <laughs> and and <laughs> But that was what it was back then. Yeah. I'm, I'm not going to lie and say it wasn't. But yeah, it was like crazy. Mm. It was a crazy time. And that 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 kind of, I mean, we most of me look back, if I look back at all the raves that we've done and made loads of money from, that one event, was a big one. It kind of it kind of gave us the the funds to develop and go on and start new brands and, and move forward out of nowhere. Kind of kind of fell on our lap as well. Yeah. yeah, like an issue with their license meant the other promoters like we're not taking the risk. Things often go this way, don't yeah. they? Like, you know, someone gets an opportunity just because someone else either flopped or like, you know, and what do you do? You get presented with this opportunity, either you either say yes try and make it happen and that just pushes you on or you go, ah, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. You let fear get in the way. Yeah, of course. And you never know where you could have got to. You could have, you've missed on out on this opportunity, man. It's amazing that you guys took that opportunity well, and really like made it happen. Yeah, we made it happen and yeah. What we, was we it about Ibiza that really made you go, I want to do a rave? <laughs> Wicked time. <man. laughs> yeah. Wicked time. <laughs> it's funny enough that that was 2010. I think that was my second time in Ibiza. And from then, I've pretty much gone every year after that, except for pandemic time. Mm -hmm. 
I didn't go 2020 and I'm not going this year, but I'm literally, it was the start of my annual IB for trips. You know what? Friends. Same for me, man. But yeah. it was the first time I went. Oh, and yeah. like literally from that first time, I was like, I'm coming back every year, yeah. at least once. Yeah, it's vibe. It's vibe. <laughs> the vibe was different. I can't explain it. But if you're in, a, if you like house music and you go to a house event, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It was, it was a different vibe. So I just felt like, wow, I want to, this is, this is next for me. Yeah, man. So yeah, I started that and pretty much, the following year to after the second audio haul, obviously now we're into Eskimo starts phase. So New Year's Eve has happened. Eskimo dances happened the following wow. month. <laughs> and then audio haul come back in May. I mean, March rather, 2012. And I remember the club went to us and thought, you guys are killing it now. Because we're doing numbers. Like, like all of a sudden we've gone from in, in the mud, flopping, to doing big numbers. So they was like, oh man, is there any other party you could do? Like we've got these dates, we really want you to fill them. One of them suggested maybe we do a different type of party, but similar. Magic come up with the idea to do siesta, which was mm. like a day party. Mm. He was like, let's do a Sunday day party. And this is really funny because I was like, no, why are we <laughs> doing a Sunday? Like we're not doing a Sunday. Anyway, I forced it, I put my foot down, I forced it. We did a Saturday. I remember it, ladies free before eight. I remember we haven't we haven't sold any tickets by the way, because back then it was like more walk up. Mm -hmm. So we decided to do this ladies free thing. Opened at four. It was dead for like three and a half hours. We was always crying. <laughs> but funny enough, at quarter to eight, I swear, I've come outside. I've looked. There's two hundred girls in the queue. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I, I swear to you, the queue was full of girls. There wasn't a single man in the queue. Within an hour, the lads have turned up. And it was a busy event. It was a busy event. Out of nowhere, everyone started to roll late. And then we started to realize, okay, we might be onto something there, even though they're coming a bit late. Mm -hmm. So slowly we started a bit later. I think we started about six after that. Nice one. And then we kind of learned. But yeah, that's how Siesta built. And then Siesta went on to do big outdoors. I think we did like a big outdoor mini festival in Southend. Mm -hmm. 2014 that was massive like Dad Sound the Room Amina and Dance Sam Devine Tough Love Martin Eichen that was a big one yeah from then we kind of could have pressed on to doing a festival but we didn't I think I think we had a bad experience yeah that might have put us off yeah at that time see talk about, I'll talk about licensing about 10 times on here we had so much pressure from the licensing police because we had people from out London coming down to South End, right, which yeah. they didn't want. Yeah, it made that event so difficult for us to run. They almost cancelled it on the day. Really? We're quite lucky. We had a team from another club helping us do the security and run the bars for us at that time. Mm -hmm. That they because they were there and they had a reputation. Yep, we were able to have that event. I think if we didn't have them there that day, they would have cancelled our event. Wow. And I think that kind of experience and that bad experience that we've had to pay extra for a lot of stuff on for the sure. day, that that kind of put us off. Because when you're doing a festival, there's a lot of costs that you think you get your costs. And then you've got your variable costs that might come into play if, and I've seen promoters this year not take on them costs and decide to ignore it and they run into problems. So, mm. yeah. There's a lot of pressure in it. 
lot of pressure, man. For those bigger shows, definitely. Yeah. I think I'll do a festival though now. Now yeah. we've got out of this pandemic, I feel like maybe, maybe the next few years you might see a festival from me. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe. And how, how are you promoting um, all of your parties? Because um, one of the things that I was always aware of traveling around South and other parts of London was the... the um, Travel like boards. Yeah, yeah. Funny <laughs> enough, I just <laughs> I literally just text the Travel like board guy, Phil, to do some Travel like boards for me for next week's party. Amazing. The final Audio Hall 10th birthday party in E1. And yeah, that, that was kind of prominent for us. So when we started back in 2011, when we're trying to get all the crowds together in one place, we kind of realize we need to adopt different strategies, mm. which over the years, everyone's kind of followed us. We 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 did free CDs. We were handing them outside events. Mm. A lot of people were like, what, you want us to pay? Like the events that we were going to that weren't black people and they were more white events, people were like, they didn't understand why we was trying to give them a free CD. <laughs> They didn't. They didn't. They didn't get it. But it was literally a free CD. It wasn't hip hop. It was house music. And I think that helped us get that audience because they were they were pumping our CDs in their car nonstop. Mm. So that helped a lot. And the boards, obviously, some people say they hate it. I I personally feel like if you've got your traffic light board right and it's got just about enough information on it, it stands out and it gives your rave a bit of presence. I know that the bigger house brands will, wouldn't use it in a million years, but yeah. I've used it for a long time and it, it kind of creates that little bit of presence because we wasn't really doing, Facebook ads never really existed, yeah, Instagram yeah. ads, they weren't about like that. So we were having to go out and use this aggressive promo strategy. Yeah. I feel like that aggressive promo strategy put us there. Uh, we had the Blackberry pin days. We were <laughs> adding up every girl we could think of like we were messaging them nonstop. Like we, it, it was so aggressive. It was just constantly in your face. It was just there. Mm -hmm. You you didn't know, but we wasn't on. We made sure you knew somehow. What inspired the, the traffic light things then? Because um, I mean, they've they've been around for quite a while, but was there any any sort of events in particular that made you go, oh wow, like that's that's a thing that maybe we could get into? Yeah, when we first started doing events, obviously we looked at like Uni Days sort analysis strengths, weaknesses, uh, what's the other ones? Opportunities and threats. <laughs> so obviously we're looking at the strengths of other parties as well, because you have to look at other parties and see what they're doing. So we kind of got that from some of the other parties that were before us and seeing how it kind of worked for them in a way. But the first board, believe it or not, we didn't have money to print boards. So I think what we did is we printed some posters and we got glue and we found some second hand boards and we actually spent hours, me and Madge, oh, gluing them. It, listen, we, we, back then we were making it work with, yeah. what, with what little money we had at the time. That's what you got to do, man. Yeah, we did what we had to do. And it was like, yeah, it was it was a mad era. I think we did proper balls a second party. We actually said, you know, we need to do this properly. It's really good to hear this, though, because, um, you know, from, a, from, from, the, from the public perspective, there's probably this, there could be this illusion in people's minds that, you guys just appeared, you had all this money, you printed out these things and like just done your thing. But the, you know, there's when been it... waves of time of like, obviously when you're young, yeah, I'll say this, like I've lived. So in the time of earning money, you spend it. 
you won't invest it. Obviously, now we know more about investing and stuff as we get older and it's, it's out there. But back then, we never knew about it. All we knew was get money, spend it in the club, girls, recycle, clothes, car, whatever. And and so forth. So through all these eras of this vinyl distro, CD distro, record shop, the money's come and been spent. So each time we're almost almost always starting from, from scratch, yeah. scratch yeah. in a certain yeah, yeah. way. So after the record shop era, we we close it because it was just things are slowing down a lot. I was set, it wasn't completely scratch. I wasn't broke, but mm. I, I was I wasn't flush with funds yeah, so we were basically way. almost starting again mm. in a way so yeah started again we we kept our costs kind of minimal in the start as much as we could even though we were we had to do a lot of the stuff was promoters now would start an event go on do their flyer and not touch any of these costs bear in mind traffic light boards are like 500 quid mm-hmm. the flyers are like 90 quid CDs are like I can't remember, but I think five hundred CDs, a thousand CDs cost five hundred quid. Right. So that's right. what we was paying out. Yeah. And bear in mind, we're doing three, four thousand CDs, so we're yeah. spending a lot of money on this aggressive promo strategy that we had for the first three years. Yeah. So, so when we've come through, a lot of people might not have understood how or why. Because we were doing the things that the bigger events, they weren't, they didn't understand what we was doing. I was like, how? Like, I remember speaking to Cosi D and Alexis Raphael had crash. Mm-hmm. And they was like, how have you done this? Like, they didn't understand how we've come through out of nowhere and got this big event. And we wasn't really booking super big names. It's not like we had Jamie Jones mm. on our lineup. Mm. We were going for the smaller guys because that's the only guys that were giving us at the time. They were giving us like, say, Wildcats who might have had a hot recreations release. I remember we printed a board on Audio Horse's second birthday on the board because obviously, you know how on a flyer you'll write the producer mm-hmm. name and then the label that yeah, they've yeah. done a track with. Yeah. So obviously we've been a bit cheeky and said, you know what, we're going to not even put the DJ's name we're just going to put the labels. labels. Yeah, I remember Label. them once. <laughs> yeah. We put the label on the traffic light board. Yeah, they yeah. meant to us. <laughs> I think we was blacklisted for it, wasn't it? No was they, was they, At the time, they thought we were trying to force advertise a party, but they didn't realise that all the holes at the top, people know what they're going for. Like they, they almost didn't see us coming. We just come out of nowhere. And all of a sudden, we're doing two, three thousand people in Coronet. Yeah. So it was... Yeah. It was a lot of that stuff out of nowhere. The physical hard promo, it, it, it did a lot for us. It did wonders for us. And how how are your relationships with agents and stuff? Because as I understand it from other people that I've spoken to that I would class as being amongst a similar group of promoters to you guys, they did they, they come, come up against issues with like, with agents that were kind of like, oh, we don't want them associated with your party, rare, rare, rare. Um, my agent relationship is... <laughs> it's very touch and go hmm. if I be honest my relationship but I'll tell you why though it's because I could be a music agent I'm just like them in fact I'm I'm worse than them <laughs> like when people call agents like CUNTs like I'm I'm just as bad when it comes to negotiations so mm-hmm. yeah I, we, we, I've, I fell out with many agents and a lot of that's 
other other kind of the other brands like the Maya Lives were doing a summer in Greece, which is booking a lot of commercial artists. And a lot of that time when I first started that and Eskimo Nance, bear in mind, anytime I had to deal with agent, I tried to swerve it. Mm. So I was calling the artist direct. And that would really, really, really anger the agents. I bet. They hated it. I bet. So my relationships agents touch and go. But back in the early house days, 2011, 2012, we were fine. That mm. They were giving us what we could afford. Mm-hmm. I, we actually wasn't getting that, oh, we're not going to give you the DJ. That never came until like 2013, 2014, when we started to run into that travel. Because I remember... The audio hall, which was October 2012, we had Alex Arnout, mm-hmm. Mark Jenkins, and Mark Hotsins82, yeah, who can. was just blowing at the time. Yeah, yeah. Funny story that, because he never even got to play because the doors got rushed and the event got cancelled. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that was another us selling too much ticket. But by then, audio hall was what? 18 months old? we pretty much knew that we had outgrown all those smaller venues before Coronet because what was that? October, 2012, we're in a 1200 cap venue. We've sold a thousand tickets. Right. Okay. Obviously we've not envisioned the 1500 others that are going to come play <laughs> on the door. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. But, but then we knew, okay, we, we let's let, that's what put us into Coronet and, after that, it's funny because we was trending the next day after the rave got cancelled. Everyone was talking about audio hall. What is audio hall? What's an audio hall? I've, <laughs> I've seen all this stuff. And I thought, listen, all, all promo is good promo. Yeah. Because people were actually talking about us because they actually wanted to know what we was. Yeah, yeah. We've come under the radar. We've come out of nowhere. And everyone's talking about us. The next party, which was in Coronet, was a sellout in March 2013. And what's the capacity at Coronet? Well, it's free too, but it was more two nines. Right. They, they 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 tried to limit us. They limited us. Okay. It wasn't trying to let us have the yeah the the area above which was the cinema bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, okay. they capped us at two nine, sold out. But then that that year, twenty thirteen, I remember booking some big DJs: Finn Basson, mm-hmm. um, Patrick Toppin. We've had some. We had we had MK. So we we had a good relationship as long as we was paying the money. Yeah, we had a good relationship. Obviously, minus the hot creations lot because after that they they actually wasn't talking to us for like a year. I think eventually they realised that we wasn't trying to take the piss. We was actually, you know, we just decided to use the label instead of the DJ's name. Obviously, we've apologised, made them know that we wasn't trying to benefit off their name or anything. And yeah, so we kind of had a all right relationship it's only 2014 now when a lot of the other promoters say your lwe's have come along your we are festivals are here things changed dramatically if you're a promoter and you you had raves of the era like the the solid grooves was coming about then Mm. the magna cartas were about then they'll know that getting the dj wasn't so straightforward anymore right it became a thing of those those bigger promoters were offering more money. Sure. Money that we really couldn't afford or justify at the time. And it became this exclusive thing, oh, we're only gonna play London yeah, a certain okay. amount of times a year. And we 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 kind of had to readjust. 
because you weren't getting the top names that we were getting in 2013. Mm. So we had to kind of readjust a little bit, branch out, do what we could, kind of try and compete to a certain extent. But yeah, but at this time, I would say maybe the agents might not have given us the credibility or the respect that we might have deserved from our success. Yeah. Because we, a lot of it was like, oh, well, we're going to choose to play this party instead. And we couldn't quite get it. It's not like we wasn't offering the right money we were willing to at the mm. time. They were just choosing other parties over us, which is fair enough. Do you, do you, is there anything that you could kind of pinpoint as being a, a reason for that? Um, <laughs> The reason why I think, I think the house scene is really clicky. Yeah. And I think we were outsiders. Yeah. And I think we were seen to be the runt of the litter, like the bottom of the barrel. Even though we were doing the big numbers, we mm. were seen to be beat at the bottom of the barrel. So we wasn't treated the same. Same as venues, really. Yeah. Like we like I've had that same issue going on to venues. Once once we we after Coronet we left there, we went GSS Warehouse, which was cool. And after then when we're searching for other venues, we're starting to see kind of that clickiness come into place where he wasn't able to go to certain venues. It's not like we had a bad crowd and the events were troublesome and they were getting locked off. Like, don't get me wrong, we had a very balanced audience. 50% mm -hmm. black, 50% white. Not 50%, but... Roundabout. Main, roundabout. Yeah, yeah. You, had, you had different cultures from different backgrounds all in the event, different types of people. In fact, I would say we're the most diversified event in London. Like, we, we don't really get any notice for the fact that we've actually managed to put all these demographics of people mm -hmm. in one place. Mm -hmm. And there's no trouble. There's no, there's good vibes. Anyway, we've done our thing. They've done their thing, but we've been, we've been out of venues. It's one of them. What do we say? We just, we've moved and we've maneuvered around it and we've managed to get through all these years without it. So... I don't resent any nightclub or agent for not giving us DJs, but I do accept that now yeah. as I've got older yeah. and as I've analyzed it, especially through the pandemic and we've looked back and we looked at all our events and we've seen how the lineups have changed and the venues have changed. We've kind of pinpointed the time where the agent said, you know, well, we're not really going to give them our sure. great DJs. We're only going to offer them the small ones. And they was offering us some ones and we're still doing the numbers. Yeah. So testament to us. Yeah, big time. And I was, I was literally going to say that, like, big up to you guys for still managing to just, like, be successful in the face yeah. of, like, having these barriers to entry as far as, yeah, like, booking people or getting venues that are going to be able to accommodate. It was hard. It was a hard period. But we, we 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 worked twice as hard and we, we got the results in the end because it's not easy. Mm. It would have been a lot easier for us to have gone into a popular venue, say like in the uh, 2015 to like 2018 era. We, it's not like we couldn't have done the numbers. We just wasn't, we, we asked for these venues. They weren't, they weren't saying yes. They were like, no, it's not right for us or this one's in here. So there's no point in putting you in here. And it was the same for kind of DJs. We weren't getting that. So now I've kind of come out of the pandemic. I'm like, okay, we know what it is now. So I've kind of gone down a different route in terms of our booking process, what venues we'll even use and stuff. Fair enough, man. 
And I guess like, you know, having having learned the lessons that you've learned, that's now kind of set you up to make the next steps that you're going to make. So with regard to that, what's happening at the moment and what are your plans for where you want to get to? Um, the pandemic, the, it's so hard to say this because the pa- when the pandemic first happened and we're in the Rona time, it's so difficult to... Um, it kind of made us analyze what's going on. So we've now realized, hold on a minute, this certain DJs are never going to play for us. Not because they don't want to, the agent, their manager is going to tell them not to, which is a lot of people used to always ask us, oh, why don't you get this DJ? And um, sometimes we're so tempted to even reply, but we thought let's not be unprofessional and start DMing people back and saying, this is why we're not, we can't get them. But the truth is, it's less so the agents. Some of these DJs have been to our party and thought, this is sick, I want to play here. Fast, go to the agent, manager. Nah, that's not important for you. It's not on your path. It's not where you need to be. Obviously, you're not, this is not where you want to play. You can't, you'll have to ask them why. I can't, I don't want to speculate, but you can imagine and take a guess. So that's, that's what point we're at with terms of certain booking certain DJs. So, after the pandemic's come, I thought, you know what? Let me reach out again just to see if anything's changed. But I wasn't accepting nothing. So I sent, I literally emailed every agent as soon as Boris said go. I said, oh, can we look at this DJ? And I noticed what came back and I thought, you know what? Nothing's going to change here. So I'm going to, I'm going to see out the contractual obligations that we had before this all started. And we're going to only really book the DJs who we're cool with that aren't afraid to tell their manager or agent, no, I want to play this party. So pretty much going forward, the special guests that we're going to have are literally going to be the ones that we're cool with and we've made friends with. The rest of them that are in the clicky little circle, I don't ever expect them to play for us. Yeah, man. And in a way, it's kind of good because it's filtered everything out and you've got people that are literally committed to your event. They understand what you're about and they want to bring that good energy to your event as well. I'll say it's better. Yeah. Because the one thing I will say is a lot of DJs now, I don't know, even if they were offered, would I necessarily put them on because I would be fearful of them clearing the dance floor. Mm. There's one thing that's happened in this period of time, which we never guest is the residents but our little network of djs like say myself madge ar hitty fabio lewis shannon that we did the live stream thing a lot during the whole lockdown period like we it would do it numbers that the the streaming numbers were higher than most you see out there so I feel like going forward that we've always had them around and obviously I play every audio, match plays every audio hall main room. So I kind of feel like going forward, trusting a DJ to be able to keep that energy. Yeah. Because when we play sets, it's not just any song. It's not like, oh, DJ comes along, plays house music and the crowd accepts whatever they're given. That's not audio hall you have to be very skilled and a very good DJ to play audio hall. Mm. Otherwise, you'll clear the dance floor. Mm. I've many a time in the past, 
we've seen people clear the dance floor because they've gone into the rave and they've not understood the assignment and they've just thought they could play anything and it's just going to work because people are raving and they might be a bit drunk or off their heads and no, it's not our rave. Like our rave is no music more than anything. Like you've got to really give it to them. So the forefront of what you're going to see is the guests who we trust that we're friends with in the next few years mm. and you'll see us around. I think that's where you're going to see the future. And um, who knows what's going to happen. Like things have moved on now. Like, there's releases going on. I've got a few coming. We've all got releases now. We don't know where we're going to be in a few years. I have to keep going, keep vibes in. So you've been in the studio as well, yeah? Yeah, man. Been in the studio for the past couple of years. Pandemic stopped it. Mm. I, I remember when a pand I had like four or five EPs ready to go before this all happened. And then I just paused for a sec because it was like, well, I wonder, I paused because I was like, what's going to come out? What sound is going to come out? Because that's the first thing I thought. The experience has taught me and say, we're not going to come out of this and have the same sound. Mm. We actually did, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not much has changed. In fact, I'd say the quality of music since we've come out of this is nowhere near the levels of what it it was before. I'm just hearing vocal ripoffs, samples, and they're shooting to the top of the beatport charts. Yeah. I guess in, in a way there's a sort of lack of inspiration because you're not out there yeah. like getting that sort of vibe from the clubs. Possibly. Could be. Because that, that time without clubs, you don't really, mm. you can't really play a tune and get a reaction nah. or hear what's, get some ideas. So you're very right in that sense. So hopefully in the next six months, we start to hear some different sounds and some music come out of the game. And there's a potentially festival on the horizon if... Uh... I'm thinking <laughs> about it. I'll be, I'll, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it because I feel like we when we came back we sold out two e1s immediately Boom. so and then we had to postpone them but yeah, they yeah. were sold out straight away that's pretty much a festival in itself mm -hmm. those numbers and we we've now on to our fourth one amazing in a matter of what 12 weeks so so it's all been going really well yeah it's all been going well so i, I think mm, should we we might do you know we might see us in a couple of years you don't know who knows future plans i don't want to say i don't want to say <laughs> never but i wouldn't rule it out so what are the key the the main um brands that you're connected with now it's audio horse siesta eskimo dance and did you say mali alive it's yeah, called mali alive is uh the overseas one yeah yeah i started that, that in 2011 um it's really good and yeah. like i'll would, I would say that like, it's crazy because i started that island because one of my pals said he was coming out of here it was like go there Go and do an event over there, but but he warned me and said this is very difficult because the clubs. Have you ever yeah. been there? Yeah, I've been twice. I went two years in a row, two oh four and oh five. Okay, yeah. So you know that this free entry to get into yeah, to yeah, clubs, yeah. <laughs> whereas that's not everywhere. Where you've got free entry to get into clubs, then you suddenly start charging on mm. one night a week. It's not easy to get the because that audience is more like seventeen to twenty yeah, year olds. Yeah. It's not easy to sometimes get them to pay a ticket. Nah. So it's been a journey, <laughs> but I would say I bought the biggest artists in the country and brought them over to that island. Brilliant. And the island's now changing a lot. 
it's it's got five star hotels with infinity pools and never used to have that wow it's like <laughs> no Crete's, ki- Crete's kind of like the place to be now like villas are popping up all over the place cool the infrastructure's changing so out there i am doing a festival out there wicked yeah i'm okay. doing a festival out there it's called takeoff and it's across five days and yeah keep growing and growing and growing that they've not luck unfortunately for them is they're not like us they've not been able to open for the past two years so Whoa. they've quite suffered. It's been tough for them. Whoa. But when I was over this summer, I was saying to my business partner out there, I was like, listen, man, trust me, next summer, 2022, as long as we're open, we have the biggest summer ever. Because we've not, we've, there hasn't been a season in two years. Like we're going to go overdrive. So yeah, yeah that's gonna be literally nuts. I'm in deep time for summer 2022 now. Brilliant. And c- just to rewind a little bit, when you were talking about rhythm division, you said that the you were, you could understand why the owner wanted to close, and then yeah. we never got onto that story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Basically, the, what happened was is back then they only knew vinyl, so I get it. If you've had a shop and you've only known vinyl sales, and your vinyl sales are slowing down, mm. you you're not envisioning that CD and merch is going to top up your money. So I imagine at that time the vinyl things completely slowed down. You thought, well, I'm not making nowhere near as much money. Sure. Because back then, you could you could press up a thousand records and sell a thousand records in a day. Yep. If you're going down to only doing a hundred of the hottest thing in a day, it's completely different. Mm. So I can imagine where his thought process might have been like, oh, maybe it's time for me to get out now. Yeah, I've man. seen the better days. And obviously, I've come in with a different angle at that time. To be like, okay, well, you know, like I, I know that there's money in the merch. I know there's money in the CDs. You might not see it because you might not even have, you might have just lost that connection with the people. So yeah, that's how pretty much I see it as, as my kind of idea of why he kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to give this up now and I'm going to sell it on. And why did you end up closing? The merch and the CDs thing was we, back then, obviously, back then it's grime. Yeah, I don't know if you remember, but there was a period of time when grime kind of faded. Yeah, and dipped. dipped. Yeah, for it sure. Was that time. Yeah, it okay. dipped. In hindsight, should have kept it because mm. I'm not sure. I would love to go in there now and find out what the rent is. But yeah, right. but my lease, luckily, he let me get out of it. Was only eight hundred quid a month. No way. Yeah, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> you wouldn't believe it. No way, man. Listen, this, that's what it was. Wow. So it was. I'm not joking. <laughs> so in hindsight, should have kept it. Yeah. Because because yeah, we should kept it. But wow. Yeah. But you know, sometimes you just gotta move on. To I don't regret things. at all. Like yeah. I'm like I've, I've started to be a promoter. I'm a successful promoter. I love what I do. I'm happy that I've been able to sustain a career in the music I'm very grateful um mm. I've got been on a journey like I've been on a journey and I feel like after this whole pandemic and this lockdown I'm ready like I, I'm more inspired now than I've ever been after sitting at home for 18 months more inspired than ever so I want to do more events I want to tr- fine-tune the events that I've got and learn from all the mistakes of the past because that's what I did in the pandemic I literally spent time analyzing each brand. What were the mistakes? What were the successes? What could we have done differently? And that's how I figured out kind of, all right, well, the DJs that cleared our dance floor, we need to stay away from them. 
for sure. We need to we need to carry on our formula because our formula has always been the same. Headliners room one, underground room two. It that's that's our philosophy. Mm. It's not changed and it's worked for us for a decade. And it's just a matter of finding the right DJs to fine tune and not really get too fussed about the venues that are trying to say no. Like, we got kicked out of a venue since we've come back from this this and it's like it's mind-boggling because as a black man and a promoter i'm looking at this and i'm like you've kicked us out the venue because we're black not because of anything else because you're happily letting other events go on but you're just saying this type of event cannot happen and i'm a professional on it so i'm not gonna go mad i'm like fair enough this is what you're gonna do like there's no point in me going online and talking about it because the truth is as much as everyone says it matters we don't matter we don't because you've you you allow some promoters to go in a venue but others not and it's basically down to the color of the skin of the ravers the predominant color of the skin of the ravers and that's for me it's not fair it's not right so yeah, we've been kicked out, like of a venue, and like it's it's crazy, and it's like they tried to cite, oh well, you lot drive to the events and causing problems with the neighbours, and it's like, come on guys, what? Come on guys, come on man, come on man. And the worst thing is, is that so even like there's an incident at this event that's called cool. like I would understand if there was a problem, like an actual real incident that's happened, but we're this is still happening. So it's made me kind of fine tune who I want to work with going forward. Because I feel like I'd rather stay away from that. And I don't want to call out any venue names. I don't want to be that guy here today and start throwing venues under the bus. But it's happening. It's still happening in London. There's still a gap between promoters that do an event where, the, say, the crowd's predominantly white and the crowd's predominantly black. We're still struggling. We still struggle. It's still hard to get it. Like this is obviously it's not um this 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 brand I'm talking about was um throwback mm. and it's it's it was it's 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 that old school soulful deep house era R and B garage yeah. like it's a it was a different type of brand and it's like well why 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 here and it's like well where do we go now like what do you want us to do like like we're talking about income here. Like, just imagine if, because there are promoters out here that do those events that can't get anywhere. What do you want them to do? Like, like to say, oh, well, we're not putting you here because 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 of a certain type of crowd. And how how disheartening is that for you? Because, like, from from my perspective, I'm like, what do you what can you do to make any change that will appease these people? And then at the same time, it's like, do I even want to appease them? You know, it's really funny. Yeah, I asked the venue the other day what can we put in to mitigate any risks that you have? And their reply was, it's not a problem. <laughs> not a problem. So they don't even want to mitigate the risk because for me, I look at it and say, you know what, if you've got a, if you've got an event and the crowd, you know, might cause some type of issue, which it happens, it's not, it's not going to be around the bush, say it don't happen. For me as a promoter, the first thing I would do is mitigate the risk and say, okay, what can we do to 
to to nullify this potential risk, whether or not that be extra security, some higher fencing, maybe getting some dogs in. You could do that. They're not even willing to do that. So at this stage, you say, well, you've lost the battle. And the truth is, I don't, I can't see it changing. It's been going on. It's going on before I was even a promoter. So, and it's, and it's continued now. But will it change? Without it, like we could, we could go, I could go online now talking about this all day, every yeah, day. Yeah. And people just paint me as the angry black man. Yep. Totally, man. So totally. when I look at it like that, I think, oh, well, we just better off just, there's venues out here that luckily, thankfully, trust in me. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily trust in the brand, trust in me. So no matter what I put in there, because I've got different type of events that are different genres. So at least I know I could still survive just about in certain venues. It is so. a shame though, man. It, I find it really exhausting because it's like there are there are certain gatekeepers, shall we say, yeah. who will not open the gates for certain people. Yeah, unfortunate. It's the same with, with going back to Audio Hall. It's the same with the, the DJs, the agents. They are the gatekeepers. Like, for example, when we did Brixton Academy, sixth birthday. So what was that for? We're 10th birthday now. What year was that? 2018? No, it was 20... No. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> we're sitting there... 2017. Yeah, 17. Yeah, I was already because I, I was in 2022 because we've been talking about. Yeah, 20. yeah. So, so 2017, we've done Brixton Academy. Obviously, O2 venues know me from Eskimo Lance. They they trusted in me. They gave me the date, even though they didn't really want to because of stuff they've heard about the brand from the local licensing police. They gave us a date anyway. Funny enough, we've got a lineup. We booked a strong lineup. We think we had Lee Foss, Dennis Ferrer, Steve Lawler. Um, we kind of did that to show everyone we could do this. So we've gone and done it. Funny enough, all these big promoters that would never let us in their venue had decided to park big, massive vans advertising their events outside. No way. So we kind of knew, okay, well, you're, we know you're watching. We thought after that, we've proved the point. We'll be able to go into any big venue. We wasn't the gatekeepers, close the door. And that's just the reality of it. Whether or not they're going to admit it and say, ooh, but it's, it's, for me, we've got a diverse crowd and some other events that they put in don't necessarily have a diverse crowd. It's more, they, 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 they call it clean. I yeah. don't know why they want to call it clean, but they call it clean. So that's what it is. That's very provocative language. It man. is, but it, it's, it's a way of doing it without being racist. For yeah, them. yeah. So I've noticed over the years that certain terminologies get used by mm-hmm. venues so they don't really seem racist. Like yeah, we don't yeah. want this type of audience mm-hmm. in here. Or this type of event. Yeah. So it's basically saying you don't want black people in your event. Yeah, yeah. It's like, let's get down to the nitty gritty. What do you mean by type? Yeah. <laughs> so, but that's what it is in London, unfortunately. Mm. And a lot of the big, if anyone asks me personally, I'll tell them, that's why you don't see us in the venues. We yeah. tried, we've tried, we tried. We have. It's crazy, man. It, it reeks of an institutionally racist culture. That, that is protected by specific gatekeepers. Yeah. Well, hopefully one day it might change, but I don't really, I'm like, no matter what happens, I've, I've maneuvered the past mm. decade and been successful regardless. Yeah. So in my head, I'm thinking, 
Well, not F you, but I'm going to be all right. Yeah, man. I'm going to do my thing and I'm going to keep going and I'm going to be successful. Like I can't. In fact, if anything, it's made us stronger. Yeah. Because we've not needed to rely on talent. Yeah, yeah. We've 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 relied on promotion. Yeah. And a, and a really good brand. Yeah, man. And the institution of racist house scene as it is now, as it is, I think someone pulled up an EDC flyer in America yesterday on Twitter. And I think out of the whole three days, I think there was over 200 acts on there. Yeah. I think less than 10% were women, less than 10% were black. And I looked at the proportion of it and I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, you know, at least people are starting to pay attention to both sides of what's missing mm. from here. Like, the struggles on all sides, to be honest. Yeah, but I just feel like, obviously, the gatekeepers need to look in the mirror, especially some of these, the ones that run the venues and look and be a bit more diverse because there's brands out here like Big Up the Originals lot, mm -hmm. Kismet, Fever, yeah, man, and Super D. They sold out festival this year. Yeah. Twice, 5,000 yeah. people. That's just them. They never yeah, needed man. to book the pioneers of their sound, the black coffees or the the charismas. They didn't need to do any of that. No, they man. just went with what they are and hats off to them. Yeah. And yeah. I'm pretty sure their mentality is the same as what mine is going into now is, well, we wasn't allowed in certain spots, so we're going to make our spot. Yeah. And you know what? Despite how... Um, how negative it is that there is this dominance of these gatekeepers. At the same time, it's like, as I said before, like, why do we need to appease them? Why do we even need them? You don't. You can just do your own thing, man. Yeah, you don't. Yeah. That's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. We don't, you can crack on. Some promoters that are starting need them in terms of the venue, not necessarily in terms of your talent. Mm. They need them because... It, most of these gatekeepers are the venues and without that you i've been in a venue for about two years and my sales at venue were on the floor mm. because it was in a certain venue mm. and it wasn't good and if if you compare that to the same party in another venue sales are through the roof yeah yeah so some venues do matter yep so bear that in mind but in terms of talent there's, there's no point in peace and no one. You might mm. as well just do your own thing. That's my advice to any promoter out there. Do your thing. We're lucky enough to have a set bunch of friends who are big names that are going to play for us no matter what. And we also trust them to play at the party. Yeah. So that's why I said going forward, you're going to see them on our parties, on rotation, special guests. If anyone that wants to come through is really cool and doesn't really want to be snobby about it, then they're always welcome to come play at our party. Uh, we're not, we don't discriminate at audio hall. No matter what your race, sexuality, mm -hmm. come vibes. We're good vibes. Yeah, man. Just to, just to finish up, um, all these years that you've been, you know, deep, knee deep in, in music, whether it's like collecting it, promoting, selling it, playing it, um, you you're you know you've been operating mostly in London your your home city mm. a city which has 
produced like such an amazing array of genres over the last like 30 odd years, you know, since electronic music really exploded. What does it mean to you to be, to have been so intrinsic in it, but also to also be, you know, a Londoner yourself who's like con contributing back into the culture of the city? Can't see it. <laughs> I can't see it. You know why? You know what? I, I'm living it. Mm. I'm, I'm living it now. Maybe in about 20 years, I'll mostly look back and it will hit me. But when I'm living it and I'm and I'm rowing at 100 miles an hour through mm -hmm. life, I, I can't see it. Sometimes when I have a really big event, I don't wake up next day and be like, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. Like it's on to the next event. Like yeah. it's, it's doing whatever I need to do to wrap up that event. It, it doesn't really hit me because mm. I'm just rolling in it. But yeah. I'm just grateful to be able to have lasted this long through different formats of this music. Yeah, man. And really press on. And oh yeah, I'm grateful to be here. To have come out of this pandemic and strong, every event strong. So it's great to see. Well, I'll say from my side, I'm grateful that you've been around as long as you haven't done what you've done, man. Yeah, you thanks, know, man. it's like it's 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 amazing. And um and full credit to you for for, for for still being in it and still being a success in yeah, the man, face of, going. you know, like quite a lot of adversity. As yeah, well, man. Man. We've had a tough journey over the past decade, especially with Audio Hall and, and Siesta in London. So, and Eskimo Dance had its own hurdles in itself, but it's got over those hurdles a lot quicker. So it's just one of those of learning how to move and adapt. I think having strength, not getting put down like understanding why certain things happen and not not, not letting it affect you because we could have easily let some of this affect us and you know we would we we it would have dampened and disheartened us but no we've, we've kept on going and we've we've kind of adopted different strategies but keeping our core blueprint since the start here and we've pressed on amazing man yeah man wicked, Stephen man. C thanks thank for your you, time man. and wicked, it's really man. amazing to hear your story man nice one man thank you thank you thank you Thank you for listening to RA's Exchange with Stephen C and Marcus Barnes. Our full archive is available for you to take in. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to Matt McDermott's conversation with Mark Clifford from Seafield. Their chat is available on all platforms right now. I will have a new episode for you next week. Until then, take care.